Okay, praise the Lord. Thank you guys so much for joining us. You know, I know Anson already talked about it, but I did want to just reiterate one more time. Easter is rapidly approaching. We're only a few weeks away. And so please, if you haven't gotten one yet, please grab a card. And on the back, you'll see a little line here that says two. You could write a friend's name, a family member's name nearby, and then just hand it to them. And that's your invitation so that they can come and hear the gospel and who knows what God might do. So just want to encourage you guys strongly to invite somebody. This is our friend day outreach. It's not just an Easter, but it's our Easter friend day. Okay, with that, um, open up your Bibles to Mark 4, 11 through 20. But Mark 4, 11 through 20, and we're going to get right into the Word of God. Okay, if you're joining us here in person, you'll see the passage behind me. If you're joining us online, it'll be on your screen at home. But Mark chapter 4, 11 through 20. This is God's Word. And Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires of other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and 100-fold. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we give you all the glory, and we just want to come before you today, Lord, and we rejoice in you. Lord God, as we sang those songs, Father, that was more than just singing. But Lord God, I pray, I hope that that was our heart's cry that our hearts were longing for you. They are longing for you. And so now, Lord, as we look at your word, Lord, worship does not stop, but it continues. May our hearts continue to long for you as we yearn to hear your word and, and understand your truths so that we can draw closer to you, that we can know you more. So Lord God, may we continue to worship. We thank you for everyone here. We thank you for everyone online. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, well, last week we began looking at spiritual disciplines and their importance to discipleship. And I mentioned how spiritual disciplines are not a way to earn God's favor, amen? You're not doing it in order to get on God's good side. Nor are they a way to change yourself by your own efforts, nor are they a way to manipulate God to bless you. But rather, spiritual disciplines are simply a way to regularly and habitually place yourself in the path of God's grace. Kind of like intentionally running into the street in front of a bus, coming down the street, except this is a bus of God's grace. Or better yet, intentionally hiking towards a waterfall and then standing underneath it to be refreshed by it. But that's the picture of spiritual disciplines. So ultimately, it is our encounter with the bus or the waterfall that changes us, not ourselves. 
So that's what you're doing when you're practicing these spiritual disciplines. You're wanting to encounter the grace of God because it is God's grace that changes us, not our efforts. It is God's grace that sanctifies and makes us more like Jesus, not ourselves. And yet, here's the paradox of the Christian life. Yes, it is only by God's grace we are changed. And yet, we must work at it, amen? With everything we have inside of us, we must strive and work at it. And we looked at this last week. I like how one Bible teacher put it, but he said, grace does not mean no working, it means no earning. I'll say it again, grace does not mean no working, it means no earning. In fact, if you are stirred by the grace of God, if you know the grace of God, you're gonna work harder than anyone. So being changed by the grace of God is not a passive thing. It is 100% a work of God, and it is 100% our work. It's both. And so Paul, I mentioned this last week, but he said in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, it wasn't nothing. It wasn't empty. It was something. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So Paul is so clear, our spiritual growth as disciples, it is 100% God's effort and it is 100% our effort. But how can that be, right? How can it be both? Well, last week I used this analogy of a two-on-two basketball tournament. But imagine, growing as a disciple is like playing a two-on-two basketball tournament, except LeBron James is your teammate, not just anyone, but LeBron. And because LeBron is your teammate, you win the tournament. And then afterwards, are you going to be boasting and taking the credit for the victory? Is it going to be like, yeah, it was me? Probably not. Because you know, and everyone knows, it was LeBron. Right? It was him, not you. But did you give 100% of your effort throughout the tournament? You better believe it. Because if you're not, then you wouldn't even be playing. And so it's the same with your growth as a disciple. You are in this together with God. The victory comes from him. The good work he began, he will complete. But do you need to give your all? Yes, absolutely. You better believe it. And if you don't, you will be out of the game. So we need to get rid of this magical kind of thinking that as long as we are around Christian things, doing Christian activities, just kind of hanging around other Christians, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow I'm going to be transformed. A lot of Christians think that way. That is magical thinking. And I mentioned this last week, but we would never think the same way about becoming like anyone else noteworthy. Last week I mentioned Tiger Woods. Put in anybody else that you admire. Maybe Lung Lung, the pianist. But none of us would think that by just meeting up with their fans, hanging around other fans, talking about how amazing they are, watching them on TV, hanging around the golf course or maybe the concert hall, None of us here are going to imagine that doing that alone is going to make us become like them. Now, you might start dressing like them. You might start talking like them, maybe pick up some of their quirks. But we know you're never going to truly be like them. Why? Well, it's because in order to become like them, you have to do what? You must follow them in their overall way of life. In other words, you must train like them, practice like them, hours upon hours, eat like them, sleep like them, you name it. You need to adopt their overall way of life if you're going to become like them. 
And it's the same to be a disciple of Jesus. Okay, I just want to reiterate that. I want to emphasize that. Yes, is it the grace of God? Absolutely, it's 100% God, but is it you? Absolutely, it's 100% you. You can only become like Jesus if you follow his overall way of life in a very committed, dedicated way. And this is where the spiritual disciplines come in. This is the context for spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines are how we follow Jesus' overall way of life. And does that take effort? Absolutely. It takes a lot of effort. This is why the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was also the Apostle of Grace, he said this, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Kind of like going out to the golf course or sitting down to a piano. Practice these things and then the God of peace will be with you. Philippians 4.9. He also said, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body. Listen to the words he's using. This is the apostle of grace. He plumbed the depths of grace more than anyone. And yet he said, I discipline my body and I keep it under control. Lest, after teaching and preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Again, is it because he misunderstood grace? No, he understands grace. He understands it so well. He strives. He works harder than anyone else. And yet, Paul knew, it is not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So unlike becoming like Tiger Woods or Lung Lung, becoming like Jesus is 100% us, but it's not just us alone, amen? Becoming like somebody else, yeah, it is all on you, but becoming like Jesus, this is different because it's not just us alone, but it is also God's grace. Again, spiritual disciplines are not a way to change yourself by your own effort, but it's simply regularly and habitually putting yourself in the path of God's grace. So is that clear? I know this is all review, but spiritual disciplines are grace. I like what one author calls them. It is the habits of grace. It is God's grace that will ultimately change us. It is God's grace that moves within us, that causes us to do things, and yet we must work, amen? I mentioned this just a moment ago, but it's God's grace that motivates you to work harder than anyone else. Again, if your mom slaved away at three jobs, even to the point of being hospitalized so that she could save enough money for you to like, I don't know, go to school, go into some program, and you receive that gift of God's grace, are you now gonna be like, woo, right? No, you will work harder than anyone else. Why? Because of the grace of your mom. So this is the same motivation the scriptures talk about again and again. It's because of God's grace, I work harder than anyone else. And if you don't, you don't understand his grace. So spiritual disciplines and spiritual growth, they are 100% God and 100% us. So now with that understanding, I want to look at our next spiritual disciplines because last week we looked at the spiritual discipline of prayer. We looked at the habit of prayer. And today I want to look at the word of God and why it is vital for disciples to know the word and be in the word. So why? Why do we need this spiritual discipline so much? Well, this is something Jesus addresses in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus' explanation really stands out because in Mark's Gospel, it is just a string of one thing after another. It is a rapid-fire narrative of Jesus going from one place to another, constantly on the move. One person described it, 
this way, but Jesus is kind of like an action hero in the Gospel of Mark. And yet, in Mark 4, there's kind of like a pause. But the narrative slows down, and suddenly we get this extended conversation that we don't get anywhere else. But there is suddenly this extended conversation between Jesus and his disciples. And what was the conversation about? The word of God. But Jesus paused, and Mark paused in his rapid-fire narrative in order to talk about the word of God and how vital it is for his disciples. And he mentioned four things about the word of God that his disciples must understand if they're going to follow him. This is a spiritual habit they must have of being in the word. So Jesus talked about four things they must understand about the word. First, the Christ of the word. And then the barriers to the word. And then the life force in the word. And then finally, the response to the word. And today we're only going to get to the first two, which are more like preparations. And then next week we're going to finish it out with the more practical side of it. But the Christ of the word, the barriers to the word, the life force in the word, and finally our response to the word. So the first thing we must understand is the Christ of the word. If you look at Mark 4, 11 through 14, it says, Jesus said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and then he went into it. Now, this is fascinating, but here, in between Jesus telling the parable of the soils, the four soils to the entire crowd, and then turning around and explaining the parable of the four soils to his disciples, in between those two things, Jesus gave this little teaching on parables in general. So this is very fascinating. But a parable is basically a story with two levels of meaning. Okay, one level is just very common. Jesus would use every common day things to explain a deeper spiritual truth. So there are two different things going on in parables. Something that's more common and then a deeper, more spiritual thing. And then this is what Jesus said about his parables. It's very important. But he said, in order to understand all of his parables, you need to first understand this one. So he mentioned this one as the foundational parable. So this parable of the four, so four soils, I don't know why I'm having a hard time saying that, four soils, is not like any other parable. It's unique. One Bible scholar called it the parable of parables. And so Jesus asked his disciples in verse 13, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the other ones? In other words, this parable of the four soils is foundational. If you're going to understand the other four all the other parables, and in fact, the entire word of God. This is so important. But why? Why is this parable of the four soils so important, so foundational, if you're going to understand all of the word of God? Here's why. It's because the parable of the four soils is about Jesus himself going about the countryside and scattering the word of God, the gospel of the kingdom to anyone and everyone who'd be willing to listen. And so his word is being scattered everywhere and is falling on different kinds of hearts represented by the four soils. And even as he was telling the crowd this parable of the four soils, in that very moment, Jesus is just so amazing as a teacher 
But as he's literally describing this parable of the four soils, in that very moment, he was describing what was happening to the people in real time. I don't know any teacher who does that. He is literally talking about what is happening to the hearers in real time. And so what he was saying is, his word, the seed, was being scattered over the entire crowd, and some of it, in real time, in that very moment, was falling on hardened hearts, some on rocky hearts, some on thorny hearts, and some on good hearts that eventually produced a harvest. And what made people's hearts hard or rocky or thorny or good? What makes somebody receptive to the word of God so that it bears fruit in their lives? Because the word of God does not hit everybody in the same way, right? Even right now, maybe this could be true right now, as the word of God is going out, as we're looking at these verses, it's not hitting all of you in the same way. Others of you, it is going to bear an incredible harvest. Others of you, it's just going to bounce right off and you're going to go on with your life. But why is that? Here's why. It's right here in this parable. It's based all on how the heart is responding to Jesus. That is what determines how much fruit the word of God will bear. So the parable of the four soils is really about Jesus, the incarnate word of God, scattering the spoken word of God upon all different kinds of hearts. And how the word or the seed interacts with people's hearts is dependent on how they see Jesus. That's what this parable is about. So what does that mean? In other words, those who have an open heart towards Jesus and believe in Jesus, even just a little, and desires Jesus more than the worldly concerns, these people are going to be very receptive to the word. It's going to be like good soil where the seed lands and it goes deep into that heart. But other hearts, they might be resistant to Jesus or they only have a superficial belief in Jesus. Maybe they just came to see a miracle. Maybe they just want something from him to upgrade their lives. We'll look at that more later. Or they desire Jesus, but not nearly as much as all these other things that they really deeply desire, the things in the world, the concerns of the world. And people with those kinds of hearts, that's not good soil. And so as the word of God goes out, that seed, it just either bounces off or it kind of goes superficially and nothing happens. So do you see this? In real time, as Jesus was saying this parable, that was happening in real time. And I dare say even right now, it's happening right now. Some of you, this is just bouncing right off. Others, it's going deep within. And others, it's going to go in for a little bit, but then not bear fruit. And so if how people respond to Jesus affects how they receive this parable, it is also true how they're going to receive all the other parables. See, that's the point of this little in-between teaching Jesus was giving. It's not only true of that parable, it's true of all the parables. In fact, it's true of all the word of God, the entirety of scripture. And so Jesus spoke in parables, not to make his teachings more clear, but he spoke in parables to filter those with sincere hearts for him versus those who don't have a sincere heart for him. Contrary to what a lot of people say, oh yeah, parables are are fun and they're interesting and Jesus spoke in parables so that it would be fun and interesting, right? More clear, but that's not what Jesus said. He said, no, I speak in parables so people wouldn't understand. 
It's a filter. But those who are receptive to me, it will open them wide up. This is why Jesus said in verses 11 through 12, for those outside, everything is in parables. Outside what? The kingdom. Those outside of me. Everything is in parables so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. It's a filter. One Bible commentator said parables are like stained glass windows in medieval churches. I like this analogy. But he said from the outside of these medieval churches, stained glass windows look very dull and lifeless. But once you enter inside the church, what happens? They come alive. They are brilliant and radiant. And even if the picture has a, uh, uh, with the window has a picture inside, they suddenly come alive, right? From the outside, you can't even see the truth that it's trying to convey. But once you're inside, then you can see it. And so it is with parables. In fact, the entirety of God's word. But for those who are not in Christ, they are resistant to Christ maybe. They have no faith in Christ or desire for Christ. When they hear the word of God, it is dull. It is lifeless. It's something to just get through, check something off. And the truth that is hidden within it, they don't see it. I mean, I don't know. But for those who are in Christ, And what I mean is they have a heart that is sincere for Christ. They genuinely desire Christ, even if it's imperfect. Do they desire things in the world? Yes, but they desire Christ even more. And for these people, the word of God comes alive. Even if they don't understand all of it, it just comes alive. It is radiant. It is brilliant. And if there is a truth there to be seen, they see it. They see it. So how your heart responds to Jesus really matters. Brothers and sisters, see, long before you sit down and open up this book and begin to practice this habit, you need to have a heart that is prepared. If you're going to bear fruit in the word, because this is more than just an exercise when you read your Bible every day, but you want it to have an effect, you want to have benefits from the word, you need to have a certain kind of heart. So this is why not everyone finds the same benefit from the word of God. It's because not everyone has the same heart towards God towards Christ. Paul said this about the Jews in his day, 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, in other words, the Old Testament, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. So Paul made that direct connection. When they read their Bible, they don't see the truth in it. Why? Because they're hardened towards Christ. Isn't that interesting? You might have thought he would say they're hardened towards the word of God, the truth that's in there. No, he said it's because of their relationship to Jesus that the word of God doesn't pay off for them. So that's the connection. Their hardness to Jesus hardened their hearts to God's word. It's the same thing Jesus is saying in this parable. So even though they read the word and study the word and even memorize large portions of the word every single day, nothing. Jesus even rebuked them directly, John 5, 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. See, you're not open to me, so you don't see anything in the word because the word is all about me. Your relationship to me is not right, so then you don't have anything right in the word. You can't see anything in the word. But the opposite is also true. If you have faith in Christ, 
You desire him. You long to know him. Even right now, you're sitting here and you're like, you know what? I don't fully understand anything, everything that's being said, but, but I just want Jesus. You're looking for him. Even as you read the word, and the word will come alive. Right? It will light a fire in your heart. You know, I love the story of the two disciples on the Emmaus Road. When I say story, I don't mean it's fictional. It really happened. But this, this encounter... But these two disciples in Luke 24, they were walking down a road. It was right after Jesus was crucified. And they had yet to hear he had risen. So they were totally bummed out, discouraged. And then Jesus, because he's the good shepherd, he loves his disciples. He suddenly appeared right next to them. But they didn't recognize him. So Jesus decided, in order to show them, he opened their eyes, he decided to have a Bible study right there on the road as they were walking, the road to Emmaus. And I love this, but it says in Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted, in other words, he taught them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He had a Bible study. He started teaching them from the Old Testament everything that the Old Testament says about himself, Christ. And then listen, after Jesus left, the two disciples said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? I love that, but why, right? When's the last time your heart burned when you heard the word of God or read it? I mean, let's be honest, probably a long time ago, if ever. But why, why were their hearts burning? It's because they already had hearts that were longing for Christ. Before they heard the word, they were already, oh gosh, Jesus, we miss him. We saw him crucified three days ago. In fact, some people were even saying he was gonna rise again. We don't know what, if that's true, but they were longing for him already. And then when Jesus appeared, they didn't know him. They didn't recognize him, but when he began to open the word of God, showing everywhere where he, where he is mentioned, their hearts were lit on fire. It was lit on fire. So do you see that? Their hearts were already longing, seeking Christ. And then when they saw Christ in the word, fire. It was fire. So it wasn't the moral stories in the Bible or the interesting history. Those things are good to know. It wasn't even the miracles that lit their hearts on fire. You know, a lot of times people, they talk a lot about miracles and how that could really turn your faith on. I, I agree, that could happen. But miracles is kind of like the sun, S-U-N, in the sky. The same sun that softens the wax, it hardens the clay. The same sun. And so yes, miracles, when you, when you see miracles or even read about them in the Bible, can it soften certain hearts like wax? Yeah, but the same thing can harden other hearts like clay. What is that? This is why I don't follow Christ, right? I can't even believe in any of this. And so it's not any of these things, but then what lit their hearts on fire? is when a heart that is already seeking Christ suddenly sees him in the scriptures, then they're going to say, did not our hearts burn within us? See? It's like wood meeting a match. You get fire. So these disciples saw Christ in the word of God. More specifically, they saw Jesus in the gospel. They saw Jesus' infinite sacrifice as a free gift on their behalf. Although they are utterly unworthy, they saw this free gift of eternal life in Christ. That's what pierced their hearts. 
See, when you read the word of God, what pierces your heart? Why do people get so like passionate about this book? I mean, let's be honest. This is a hard book to read. It's very long. A lot of parts of it that make no sense. It can even be boring at times. But what is it about this word that changes people's lives? What's the sharp tip of the word of God? What I I would suggest to you, it is the grace of his gospel. It is the grace of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Simone Weil, the Jewish Holocaust survivor said, there are only two things that pierce the human heart, beauty and affliction. If you think, think about it, that's true. In your life, as you go through life, what really moves your heart? It's gonna be something incredibly beautiful, maybe a beautiful person or a beautiful event or something beautiful, or it's gonna be something incredibly painful. These are the things that truly move your heart. And when you look at the cross, at the gospel, you see both. You see both. To degrees you don't see anywhere else. But Jesus' beauty and the affliction he went through on your behalf shines brilliantly like that stained glass window. Once you go inside, you see it brilliantly. And then that pierces your heart. That pierces your heart. That, that is what lights your heart on fire. See, if you're already seeking Christ, you're open to him, and you're like, gosh, I just, I just want to know more about this Jesus. I just want to come to really know who he is. And then suddenly you see that in the word, boom. So do you see the beauty and pain of Christ for you upon the cross? That is the sharp tip of the word of God. See, it's not just a collection of good moral stories. And, oh, gosh, I need to get my marriage together. I need to you know, be more disciplined in my life. How can this book help me? I mean, you can learn those tips. But that's not what will change you. It's going to be the sharp point of his grace on your behalf, the beauty and affliction of Christ on your behalf. So here's the question. If you're going to make reading this book a habit this year, and for many of us it's not, but if you're going to make it a habit, is your heart open to that? Is your heart seeking Christ? Are you longing to see that beauty and affliction of what he did for you in here? Is your heart drawn to that? And because of that, now are you desiring Jesus? Remember your relationship to Jesus directly affects how you receive the word? Remember the parable of the four soils? This is why so many of us, we open up this Bible in the mornings and we try to be a good Christian and read it and nothing. It's because you're already not seeking or desiring him. There's nothing there. You're seeking all these other things and now you're trying to put the word in? Nothing. It's gonna be nothing. And so do you have a heart that desires him, that sees him, that wants to know him more? And if you do, then your heart is prepared. It is ready now to read and receive the word of God. And if you have a heart like that and you begin to read the word of God, then what will happen? That seed goes deep and then all kinds of other things begin to happen. Fruit, there is fruit in your life. So when you read the word of God, you must look for Jesus. You need to already be seeking him, desiring him, and then you need to look for him. I'm just trying to directly tell you guys how to read the word of God for it to impact you. You need to look for him in all the scripture. Okay, whatever part of the Bible you're in, you need to look and seek for Jesus. So here are some suggestions, but you need to ask questions like, how does this passage draw me closer to Jesus? Okay, you could be deep in Leviticus, but you should ask that question. How does this passage draw me closer to Jesus? 
How does this passage point ahead, if you're in the Old Testament, to Christ's saving work and what he did for me? If you're in the New Testament, how does this passage point back to what Christ did for me? What does this passage tell me about who Jesus is and what he came to do? Again, it doesn't matter where you are. What is this passage saying about how Christ fills the deepest needs in my life? Because Christ does fill the deepest needs in your life. He's the only one. Brian Chapley, he was a seminary professor in St. Louis, but he said, and I'm paraphrasing him, but he said, people are like Swiss cheese. We're full of holes. We're full of need, all kinds of need, all kinds of lack. And what can fill these holes? Principles, self-discipline, good teaching, hard work, even religion. What can fill these holes? Nothing, nothing else but Christ and what he did for us. Amen? And so as you read scripture, this is what you're looking for. You're looking for Christ and how what you're reading here can fill these gaping holes in your life. And as you begin to see that more and more, again, fire. This makes you passionate for the word. So you need to have a heart that's prepared. So are you asking these questions? Are you looking for Christ when you read the word of God? And even before you open this book, are you seeking him? Are you desiring him? So if God's word is going to light a fire in your heart and bear fruit, then we must seek the Christ of the word. That's the first point. It was a long point, but that's the first point. This is the first and most important thing we must understand. See, if we miss this and then jump straight to now having the habit of reading the word every day, then you're gonna miss everything. It's just gonna be like those Pharisees again. Jesus said, you search the scriptures diligently because you think in them you have eternal life, but they point to me. They are all about me. They bear witness to me. So is that your perspective when you open this book? Is that your heart? Is that your longing as you open this book? I, I, I want to see Christ today. I'm seeking him. So that's the first thing we must understand. The second is the barriers to the word, the barriers. Mark 4, 15 through 19. Jesus said, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away and others are the ones sown among thorns. There are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. So earlier I said each of these soils is a heart. It's a kind of heart that does not truly seek God or desire Christ or seeks Christ. Well, a heart that remains in that state is what? It's not saved. It's outside the kingdom of God. It's outside. So this parable is really a salvation parable. I remember one of my professors in seminary teaching on this said that. This is really a a salvation parable. It's really about who is receptive to Jesus and his word and therefore saved and who is not receptive to Jesus and his word and is not saved. So this is really a salvation parable. But having said that, even believers from time to time can have hearts like these soils. It doesn't mean you're not saved anymore, but it can look like one of these soils. So I, I don't think it's only for salvation, who's saved or not saved, but it can also represent different Christians at different seasons. 
But believers also, for various reasons, can have unreceptive hearts. And these hearts become barriers to God's word, to God's word coming in and bearing fruit. So here's something else we must do if we want the word of God to bear fruit in our lives. Not only must we first seek Christ and look for Christ, but we must also clear the heart of all these barriers. We need to clear out all these barriers if you're gonna see fruit from being in the word. See, there's a lot of prep you need to do before you open this book up and if you're gonna benefit from it. So we must clear the heart of all these barriers. So first, there's the heart and path. Jesus said in verses three to four, listen, a sower went out to sow and as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and devoured it. Clearly, this is a non-believer, but some believers can also be like this from time to time. So these are the ones who hear the word of God and immediately there's a resistance. Why? Well, we should already know why by now. It's because there is this resistance to Christ. It's something about Jesus. You're just kind of, I don't know, you're far from him, you're just kind of resisting everything he's about, all his teachings. And so when you hear the word, there's a resistance. And so there's no chance for these people to enter the kingdom and bear fruit because the seed of God's word is sitting on top of their heart and hearts. And when Satan sees that, he comes and snatches it immediately away. Now, I remember this uh, story that Chuck Swindoll told one time. He, he's a pastor. He used to pastor in Fullerton in Orange County over here. But one time he shared about having a dinner with a businessman who was coming out to his church. And I don't think this businessman knew Christ. And so he was talking to him about Christ. And at one point he took out a napkin and began to draw the whole bridge illustration. You know, you're over here and God's over here, but sin has separated you, but Jesus made the way and all that, right? So he kind of explained all of that. And then afterwards, the businessman looked at Pastor Chuck and said, you know, thanks for taking the time to meet with me and talk to me, but there's no way I can believe in that. There's no way, right? I mean, I, I don't even understand like, like why this would even apply to my life in so many words. And so this man was not receptive to hearing any kind of word about the gospel. Why? Because he was not receptive to Christ. So they always go hand in hand. But this is the heart and heart. Because he was not open to Christ, he was not open to any word about Christ, and so that seed just sat right on top of his heart, and then the enemy came and snatched it away. It was gone. Nothing happened. Absolutely nothing happened. They just went their own way, and then he lived his life. Nothing happened. And when I look today at the people all around in our culture and a lot of the people that I bump into around my community, I believe this is the primary way the enemy is working today, by sowing unbelief in the word of God. By far, this is clearly what the enemy is doing. He is sowing widespread unbelief in the word of God. And that way the word just sits on top of hardened hearts and then he snatches it away. So unbelief in the word of God is growing and I've seen this trend since the 90s. That's when I got saved, started walking with Christ. But since the 90s, I've seen this steady trend of unbelief in the word of God. Recently, a popular pastor said, we should stop saying the Bible says. I don't agree with that, but this is his take on it. But he said, we should just stop saying the Bible says on Sunday. Why? Because it automatically turns people off. People don't believe in the Bible anymore. So why keep saying the Bible says? It has no authority for them. And some people agree with him. I don't agree with that, but that's what he said. D.A. Carson, who's perhaps the most respected New Testament scholar in the world, 
but he taught at a seminary, which by the way, belongs to our new denomination. So we are part of the EFCA and they run Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. This is the school that Carson was at. But he said every incoming freshman class, year after year, he said he noticed was more and more biblically illiterate. Every single year, he's like, really? Because they take some exam, I guess, to see the biblical literacy. And the scores were getting worse and worse every incoming freshman year. So unbelief in the word of God is growing. And here's why the enemy is always using this tactic to undermine the word. It's because if the enemy can get people to doubt God's word so that that seed just sits right, right on top of heart and hearts, then that opens the door to every other form of rebellion. Right? Everything else begins, begins to happen. It's so much easier for the enemy. So this is why the serpent, when he came to Eve, said, did God really say? I mean, this is as old as Genesis 2, Genesis 3. But did God really say? See, he's undermining the word of God. He undermined God's word in order to open the door to every other form of rebellion, and that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. Every other form of rebellion opened up. You know, recently I heard this talk by a Christian leader who said, today, there's a lot of problems we're facing, right, you know, in our culture. I mean, think about any hot topic issue, politically or culturally. I mean, it is causing great confusion, division, even within the church. I mean, so many problems, right? So many things that is being discussed and debated and divided over. And then this leader said, people, when they look at all that, they say, gosh, look at all these problems. But he said, no, it's really just coming from one problem. All these many problems is just really one problem. He said, is unbelief in the word of God. And I agree with that. So whether it's gay marriage, transgenderism, abortion, you know, uh, whatever, you name it, right? I'm not just picking on those things. There's many other problems too. But all these things just comes down to one problem. An unbelief and a fundamental rejection of the word of God. And if all these problems are really one problem, then there's really only one solution bringing back a fundamental respect and honor for the word of God. I would even say a submission to the word of God. Now, that may never happen in the culture, but what about the church? What about all of you? So the hardened path is very, very evident. It is widespread today. This is the first barrier. This is why the word of God goes out and it just lands right there. The seed is right on top of this hardened ground and the enemy just goes, whoop, thank you very much. And he throws it away. But there's another barrier. There's the shallow soil. It says in verses five through six, other seed fell on rocky ground where it did not have much soil and immediately it sprang up since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched and since it had no root, it withered away. So these are people who receive God's word with great joy initially. So they come to church, they hear something you know, from the word and they're like, really? That's in the Bible? Jesus is like that? Whoa, right? And they get excited and I've seen this countless times. I used to be a college pastor. I think I saw it more then. But I still see it today. But people receive it with great joy initially but then they go from there and then life gets hard because of that word. They're trying to follow it. It's not working out. There's persecution even. And then they fade away. Their faith withers like a plant. So they have no root. There's no commitment. And so these are the fair weather fans. These are the people who come to Jesus, not because they want Jesus, but they want something else. 
I believe the epitome of this is the rich young ruler in Mark 10. We already looked at him. But he is the poster boy of this. But he came to Jesus with a good life, good morals, success, even religion, and yet he was still lacking something. So many people today are like that. I mean, oh my gosh, if there's any candidate to be a believer, it's you. I mean, look at you. you. You run a successful business. You are so accomplished in your field. I mean, you are a good moral person. I love hanging out with you. I mean, you're even kind of religious. I mean, you, you believe in some sort of a God. I mean, who would be more susceptible receptive to the gospel than you. And yet, when this man came to Jesus, Jesus said the most outrageous thing to him and then just wrecked him. He wrecked him. So this man and others like him, they come to Jesus to make their lives complete. You know, I'm I'm just lacking something. They sense it, right? Of course they do. They have a gaping hole inside of them, a God-shaped hole. They don't know what it is, but they, they just sense something is still missing. So they want that final upgrade. So they come to church, they come to Christ. They're even sincere, they're earnest, right? You might even say they're looking for Jesus. And yet, to all these people, Jesus just wrecks them. And this is how, by the way, you know you've encountered the real Jesus, is that he doesn't appease what you're already naturally wanting from him, which is probably an upgrade to your life. He doesn't appease that. But this is how you know you've encountered the real Jesus, His word wrecks you. He's a wrecking ball. So he told this rich young ruler, sell everything you have. And by the way, it says right before that, he looked at him. And that word look means really look through him. He looked through him and he loved him. He he could read him like an open book. He's like, I I know you. I, I, I created you. And he loved him. And then he said, okay, you want to follow me? Sell everything you have and follow me and you will have treasure in heaven. Get to us, we're like, okay, okay, what's the big deal? He should have just followed him. But that was a wrecking ball. That destroyed him. And so he went away deeply sad because he had great wealth. He came to Jesus for an upgrade and Jesus said, no. The kingdom of God, the gospel, does not offer upgrades. It completely tears down everything you're building and it builds up something new. And if you're not ready to accept that, then you can't be my follower. So this is the epitome of the rocky soil. This rich young ruler came with joy and then he left deeply sad. Okay, that's the rocky soil. They come to church, yeah, we we might even have some on Easter. Oh, wow, this is great. And then they try to follow maybe a little bit or they try to come back another time. Oh, gosh, I don't know. I don't like this. They're looking for upgrades. But Jesus says, there's only one thing that I accept. It's a complete makeover, right? We need to tear down what you're building and God will build something new. So he was the rocky soil. Why? Because God's word, the gospel, does not, did not offer what he was wanting. And so the rocky soil cannot accept that, right? The rocky soil is always about, but I'm only here because I want you to give me what I want. That, that is the rocky soil. And so this kind of a heart is also a barrier to the word of God. I mean, you can see why, right? If you have that kind of a heart, you're like, you know, I, I need an upgrade to my life. And so I'm reading this book every day. Where's my upgrade, right? Why is this book so long and complicated and all these like rituals and priests and animals and sacrifice? I mean, I just want an upgrade to my life. God, I just need a little pick-me-up today. You gotta help me with my marriage. I gotta, I gotta make more money, right? I, I need more self-discipline so I can finish my grad program. I need an upgrade. Where's my upgrade? 
So you can see how this doesn't create the fruit in that kind of a heart. It is the rocky soil. So that also needs to be repented of. And then finally, there's the thorny soil. And we'll, we'll close with this. But Jesus said in Mark 4, other seed fell among thorns and the thorns grew up and choked it and it yielded no grain. So these are people who are sincere. They come to church, they hear the word of God, they receive it with joy and it's, and it's genuine joy. They actually see Jesus. They're not here for just an upgrade. Maybe that might be part of it. But they actually see the beauty of Christ and his affliction for them. And so they actually do long for him. And yet, the heart is a very busy place. It is not just desire for Christ, but there are many other desires. It's a cauldron of desire. And so Jesus further explained, these are people who are tangled up in the cares of the world, paying bills, okay, finishing your project at school, okay, taking your kids to lessons, whatever, all the cares of the world, paying your mortgage off, the pursuit of riches, the deceitfulness of riches, and many other desires. And so Jesus, the word of God is just so perceptive, but he calls these things what? Thorns. And, and, and what do thorns do? You know, I remember long, uh, like maybe like a year ago, we were going through Joshua Tree, maybe longer, but we were going through Joshua Tree. And I remember I was walking through this one patch of the desert and I kind of had this like flowing shirt and I'm just walking with my family and then whoa, <laughs> I immediately got caught. It snagged me. It was very unexpected. And so what do thorns do? They snag you unexpectedly. You don't expect it, and yet before you realize it, you're snagged. So that's what these things are. These desires, all these desires bubbling in your heart. Yes, you come to church, you hear the word, you desire Christ. But there are all these other things, and so they snag you. And so why are all these worldly concerns, thorns that so easily snag us unexpectedly? Well, just real quick, two reasons. First, the world is calibrated by Satan to snag you, to tempt you. It's calibrated. Everything about the world is exactly, perfectly positioned to tempt you. That's why you're driving down the road, minding your own business. Maybe you're even like singing a praise song and then suddenly your eyes go to a billboard and next thing you know, for the next 15 minutes, you are just in this fantasy world. It could be a lustful fantasy. It could be a prideful fantasy. It could be a coveting fantasy. You're just, it's perfectly calibrated. You know, I'm not a, you know, proud to say this, but have you ever experienced this? I've experienced this where you open up the word of God to read it and then suddenly you look at your computer. You know, my laptop was open in front of me and I like tech. I'm a very tech uh, illiterate person who likes tech, if that makes sense. I, I don't really know, you know, yesterday somebody had to help me pay off even just something on our website to get it up and running. But anyway, but I like tech, right? And then the moment I saw that ad, what happens? My heart completely left this and I'm looking at this website, this tech website for like 30 minutes. Perfectly calibrated. And then you come back to the word and then what, what is it like? Are you like ready and hungry? No, your heart's just dead cold. It's like, oh, what is this, you know? I'm still thinking about that tablet, right? And so it's perfectly calibrated to tempt our sinful nature, but that's not all. It's constantly discipling us as well to love it. See, it's not just this kind of neutral thing that we should just kind of avoid and walk around. No, it is coming after us to disciple us so that we would love it. It's interesting, but in scripture, the world and the things in the world, whether it's idolatry, money, all these things, they're, they're framed with the word love. 
Right? You hear that all the time. Do not love money. Do not love the things in the world or anything of the world. It's framed with the word love. So it's a competing love. There are these competing loves. It's love for Christ or it's going to be love for the world and it's not going to be both. It's going to always be one or the other. And why is that so important? It's because love is a powerful, powerful motivator. Right? What you love disciples you. If you love your class, you're going to become a student of that class. If you love that career field, that subject, you're going to become a student of that. If you love Christ, you're going to become his student. But whatever you love, you become disciple by that thing. And so it's competing loves. And so it's constantly discipling people. And so we don't even realize. Again, it's like that snag. We don't realize what is happening to us. And I remember Francis Chan shared the story, but he said he went to a mission trip to Africa one time, and then he came back. And he had an announcement to his church. But he said, while I was in Africa, I had this conviction that I'm going to downgrade my house. And he said, nobody downgrades our house in that community. He lives out in Simi Valley, very nice area. But he said, I, I felt the conviction to downgrade my house, to move out of this nice home with my family and move into a, a much smaller house in order to save money and donate more to missions and other things. And he said that not one person in his church encouraged him in that or supported him. Not one. I mean, not everybody was against it, but nobody encouraged him or supported him. He was like, not one person in this large church he had. And so what is that? I think these are people who have been discipled to love a certain way. And so why are we talking about this? Because all of that causes a heart to be unreceptive to the word. Again, it's just so simple and common sense, and yet we don't think about it. And that's why when we open up the word of God, it's just dead. You can even say to God, this is dead to me. Well, it's because your heart is alive to something else. So we're gonna just stop right there, but these are all the barriers that we must repent of. So again, it is about competing love. So why don't we just come before the Lord? Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. But next week, we're gonna now look at the good soil and how to become receptive to the word. But before that, we must prepare our hearts and rid ourselves of all these things that are barriers to the word. So let's just do, let's just do that right now. Let's, let's come before the Lord and let's ask God, God, please. Help me. My heart is hard. My heart is rocky and shallow. My heart is thorny, filled with all these other desires that so easily snag. Confess that before the Lord. And then ask for his love to come upon you in a fresh new way. Ask him to make your love for him come alive in a fresh new way. It really is about competing loves. If you're gonna hear the word of God, receive it and benefit from it, you need to have the right heart. So let's just come before the Lord. Let's just spend a few moments. Thank you, Lord God.
He is in our midst. Reach out to Him. He is not far from any of us, the Bible says. The Bible says, draw near to me, and I will draw near to you, says the Lord. Let's just come before Him. And you know, you know where your heart is. The Word of God has been incredibly dry to you. It has been a long time since you've read the Word. It's not a Word problem. It's a relationship with God problem. Your relationship with Christ is not right. And that's why you find no benefit from the Word. So let's just come before Him. Let's get right with Christ. Receive His grace. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Confess your sins. And you will find times of refreshing. Acts 2. Thank you, Father God. We just come.